We're a little light tonight. A little light. That's all right. They're all going to come in because everyone was in the kitchen, and they're all going to come in here together in one shot. That's what's going on. All right, let me pray for us, and then we will dive into our penultimate night here for the semester. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we get to gather in a comfortable space to be able to talk about your word. God, I pray that as we talk about uh, an area of scripture that is probably quite familiar to most of us, God, I pray that you would give us fresh insight into how we are to approach your word. And God, I pray that um, as we are working through this material, that you would give us clarity of thought, that you would give us um, endurance to be able to to be able to persevere uh, through this and not letting our minds wander. And so, God, we pray that that would happen and that you would send your Holy Spirit uh, to help us in that endeavor. So, as is my custom, I would ask that you would just pray for me, um, and that the things that I say would be accurate, that it would be beneficial, and that uh, I would say only what it is the Holy Spirit would have me say. So take a moment and pray for me if you would. Father, we are uh, nearing the end of this uh, multi-week um, process that over the last 13 weeks or so we've been looking at your word. And God, I pray that tonight uh, would continue to be beneficial. I pray that my voice would hold up and I pray that the things that I say would be beneficial, it would be clear, it would be accurate, and most importantly that it would uh, draw us closer to you. And so Father, we pray that you would use my words, that you would use your word more than anything and your spirit to be able to draw us to yourself. As Father, we pray this, knowing that you are able to do more than we can ask or imagine. And so we ask that you would help us tonight. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. See, I told you, everybody came in from the kitchen. We're good to go. All right, so let's do a quick recap of where we have been. We spent four weeks talking about uh, kind of introductory matters, and then we basically started working through uh, genre by genre, and we took about five weeks to work through different genres of the Old Testament, and then the last two times we met um, on the other side of Thanksgiving was whenever we looked at just the Gospels, and we'll do a little bit of a recap of those here in a bit. And so tonight, all we are talking about are the epistles, uh, the epistolary genre, and um, we're going to talk about all that content here in just a moment, and then next week which is going to be our last week, is when we're going to talk about apocalyptic literature. Um, and so apocalyptic literature is more than just revelation, but for most of us, when you think revelation, that's accurate. That's what we're going to be talking about. So um, let's recap uh, here in just a moment. But tonight what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the basic uh, description and characteristics of the genre of epistolary literature. And then we're going to talk about seven general guidelines to read this genre. Which, by the way, I've looked back at my notes and I've had seven guidelines more than a couple of times. That's not intentional. And like that's like, in fact, I normally have like 10 and I whittle them down. And so we just keep landing on seven. So hey, rock on. Um, so we got seven guidelines for how to read the epistles. And then we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we're going to put into practice those guidelines. Yeah? All right. So that's where we're heading. This is where we were over the last two weeks. We talked about the Gospels, and what we said is we need all four Gospel accounts because each author has a different genre, excuse me, audience and goal in mind. So they're going to include different material, different details, different chronology to accomplish that goal. Um, and whenever we talk about the, the fact that there are different details, 
We've got to square with the fact that you don't have to have an exhaustive recounting of every single detail possible in order to be accurate. As long as you're being truthful, that's where accuracy is laid. And then last week that we met, we talked only about the parables. And the number one thing that I told you that we need to understand about the parables is that Jesus intentionally is obscuring as he is revealing. The parables are meant to reveal an aspect of the kingdom of God. And as he is revealing, he is also going to make it so that only those who have the ears to hear and the eyes to see, that they are actually going to hear and comprehend. So he intentionally obfuscates. He obscures it as he is revealing. And then the second key is, if you want to know about the kingdom, you got to come to the king. And when you come to the king, he's going to tell you everything, right? And so we look at Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 4, um, as that parable, as kind of like the, the paradigm for all the parables. Um, so we spent a whole week on the parables. So what we're going to do now is we are basically going to look at 21 books in one shot, okay? And now I know this, you know, that might sound a little overwhelming, but I, stick with me here as we explain this, because tonight I guarantee the things I'm going to talk about, you intuitively do the vast majority of the stuff we're going to talk about. You intuitively are going to approach all the letters of the New Testament generally the proper way. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put words and structures around how you do it so that we do it well. Just because you do it intuitively doesn't mean that we do it well. Yeah? Agreed? So, I, I promise you, everything we're going to talk about, you're going to be able to do right away. I just want to give us some structure. So, let's run through some of these general characteristics. There are 21 books of the New Testament that fall into this epistolary um, genre, right? Um, and of those 21 books, 13 of them were written by Paul. And these are really letters, okay? When you hear epistles, think letters, basically. That's what we're talking about. So we're talking about everything from Romans all the way up until Revelation, right? And if you talk about Romans all the way through Philemon, that's the Pauline corpus. Everyone ever heard that word corpus? That just means body. So the body of work that Paul wrote is from Romans all the way to Philemon, right? But if you add in 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Hebrews, uh, the book of Acts, and you add in Jude, there's your other books plus Revelation, there's your 27, yeah? So 21 of the books of the New Testament are really just letters, right? Does that make sense? And so what then is the difference between an epistle and a letter? Because they basically are the same thing, but really what's going on is there is a form that was generally followed. So there is a literary form that included uh, whenever the author was writing, there was an opening, an identification of who the author was, an identification of who was going to be reading it, the recipients. There was going to be a greeting or a thanksgiving. Then you actually had the body of the, the letter. And then there was a final kind of closing um, salutation where they would sign off. And that was generally the form. So the difference between a letter and an epistle is that an epistle is just churched up. That's really all it is. It just fits into a mold, and normally the main thing that changes it is whoever is writing it identifies themselves right out the gate. Yeah? So, when you hear 21 books, we're really talking about individual letters that are written from one person or a group to a church, or if you're talking about Timothy, Titus, Philemon, you're talking about from a person to another individual person. Yeah? So, again, these are all details you know. 
not a big deal, but I am going to throw this word at you. Authors can use an amanuensis. Does anybody know what an amanuensis is? That word is just, it comes from Latin, it's from the hand of, is what it means. An amanuensis is a secretary. So there are times whenever Paul or Peter is talking to this cat named Sylvanus or uh, Silas, um, sometimes you might see his, word uh, his name translated like that, is they will dictate a letter, and this dude is literally writing it down. The guy writing it down is the amanuensis. We have evidence, clearly, that there were secretaries, these guys who wrote the letter at the dictation of whoever the actual author is, and we still consider that letter written by Paul, right? In Galatians, it's probable, probable that Paul dictated the letter, and then at the very end, you know, puts his big John Hancock on there, Paulos, see what great letters I'm writing my name, right? But before that, he was probably dictating it, and somebody else was actually writing it down. This is important because you, the, the more that you study the New Testament, especially some of the earlier letters, you will get into all sorts of arguments that the secular world will say, well, no, you can't distinguish between what Paul wrote and what actually Sylvanus wrote or whoever the amanuensis is. And so really, you can't really say this thing's inspired, right? Are you tracking with me? However, what I would say is we have already seen this happen once in this study. Does anyone remember the time that I talked about how this actually worked out before in, it was actually, here, let's look back. We were looking at week number three, whenever we did the Bible formation and organization. Jeremiah and Baruch. Jeremiah dictated to this cat who just was writing furiously all the stuff that Jeremiah said, right? So this was a common thing. All right, so I wanted to put that in front of you so that you would just be armed with knowing that this is not that big of a deal, but you will hear from time to time people that will attack the credibility of the New Testament because they would say, well, Paul technically didn't write that. Okay, like, I get what you're saying, but according to ancient conventions, all the way from Jeremiah, all the way through up through Paul, like, they would dictate it, and everyone would know, actually, Paul wrote that, even though his fingers weren't the one guiding the quill. You tracking with me? All right, so that was a little tangent. That's all for free. Here's the thing that you need to get about the letters, and you already know this, but I'm going to tell you the terms. You have got to understand that the epistles are occasional and situational. They are occasional and situational, right? And what I mean by that is there is not this regular, as opposed to occasional, there's this regular, once every two weeks, I'm going to send a letter out, and we just happen to grab a hold of one of them, right? No, 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 no. What happens is there is something going on either with the author, and he wants to inform the reader about, whether it's a church or a person, and the occasion arises for him to write the letter, and that situation, whatever's in his heart, on his mind, whatever there is a problem that he needs to address, he will address it, and then he sends it off, Okay. This is going to be really important whenever we start looking at some text here in a moment. Um, but this is going to lead to some help, but it also can be kind of dangerous for us, okay? All of the New Testament letters are situational and they are occasional. They were written for a purpose to address a situation at some individual time. Let me give us a couple of examples. If you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 says this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral or sexually immoral people. 
What stands out to you in that statement? I wrote to you in my letter. What letter is Paul referencing? Because remember, we're in 1 Corinthians. This is one that is totally free for you. 1 Corinthians is not the first letter to the Corinthians from Paul. It's not. Okay, it's just not. Now, so the issue might be, okay, well, then don't we have to have that letter? No, because whenever we went through the first four weeks, five weeks of this study, we said that we have, uh, we hold to the closed canon and we hold to the fact that sufficiency, the, excuse me, the sufficiency of scripture, right? We hold to that God has um, so orchestrated that we have what we need. And so we don't have the first letter from Paul to the Corinthians. There may have been 50 letters from Paul to the Corinthians before we get 1 Corinthians. Are you tracking with me? And that's perfectly fine, okay? Perfectly fine. Let me add on top of that, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8, and a little bit later in verse 9, 2 Corinthians 7 and 8, for even if I made you, or even if I grieve you with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, but only for a little while. When you start looking at 1 Corinthians, there doesn't seem to be a real clear connotation that there was something in 1 Corinthians that would have grieved them. And this is 2 Corinthians, so what then can we imply? There's probably at least one other letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. Are you tracking with that? So at a minimum, 1 Corinthians is the second letter, at a minimum, and 2 Corinthians is likely the fourth. But here's the deal. That's okay. That's perfectly fine. Because as we see the things that Paul is writing, the first or the third letter that maybe we don't have, those very well may have been like, hey, I'm coming to you next week. That may have been all there was. Who knows, right? But what we hold to is the sufficiency of Scripture, and we hold that what God, what God has contained in Scripture for us is what we need. Yeah? It's just, that's all completely for free. Yep. And then one more, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. So 2 Peter 3, 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. For whatever the occasion is, whatever the situation is, Peter says, no, 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 this is the second time I'm writing to you, and I'm telling you the same stuff, basically. I'm stirring you up by way of reminder. I've already talked to you about these things. Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 3, 4, and 5, there's at least three different times that he is referencing stuff that they already know, stuff that he taught them while he was there with them. And so the situation arose to where he needed to remind them. Are you tracking with all that? So here's the point. When we read the New Testament letters, those are written for a specific reason, an occasion, a situation that is being addressed by the author. It's not just willy-nilly and we just happen to get a hold of them, right? That's not the way it works out. Yeah? We cool with all that? Situational and occasional. All right, so let me ask you this question. What value do the epistles give us as believers in Jesus today? Why do we need the letters of the New Testament. Why do we need the epistles? You tell me, what do they give us? Teaching. teaching. So does that imply that there is no other teaching in the Bible? Okay, so we're talking about letters that were written from an authority and he's going to teach specifically, generally, churches, yeah? 
Good. What else? Yeah, I think you can read that into the letters. Yeah, and so they were written um, from Second Peter chapter three, verse one. I'm stirring up your sincere hearts by way of reminder. Like I'm wanting to remind you of the commitments you've made. Right. That's one way you can read that. Rich, did you have your hand up? Oh, I'm sorry. Yep. Just the general sinfulness that we encounter in the world is addressed pretty much in every letter. And sexual morality is one of those that I think is addressed in almost every letter, um, for sure. Saw two other hands. No. Problem solving, okay. In what way? Rebuking. Okay. You want to give me an example or where you're pulling that from? Yep. So, I mean, if you want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I delivered to you of first importance that which I also received, and on the third day, and he goes to explain the gospel. Um, and he eventually, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, is whenever he gives us instructions about the Lord's Supper. So he's teaching. Um, but some of that is also, as he is teaching how to do the Lord's Supper, why did Paul write that in 1 Corinthians 11? What was he actually countering? It wasn't, hey, y'all don't know how to do the Lord's Supper. What was it he was addressing? They were just doing it wrong. Like folks were showing up hammered. Right? They were getting blasted and then coming to church. Paul's like, no, you shouldn't do that. Don't you have homes that you can eat in and drink in? Like, don't, don't come together and do this. Like, what you're doing is not right. And so he addresses, this is what you do. Yeah, that's good. Anything else? Ed. Okay, so there it is. So there is this timeless nature of, of the instruction, of the confrontation of sin, that yes, that was something that that individual church was dealing with in a very precise way, and that's why whatever author it was wrote and was dealing with that situation with them. But as we, as believers now, we read that as authoritative and we say, no, 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 that applies to us as well, right? So there is a very, very clear sense that this isn't for us. Like this wasn't written to us. It was written in time, in space, by a person or a group to another person or group. And that's very true, but also it's very true that this is God's word delivered to the saints. Like that is for our instructions as well. Right? So we do have to kind of hold those two things in tension. Um, so there are going to be, um, I don't actually have this written down. This is actually one of the things I cut out. But you bring it up. So this means that there are times that culturally the thing that is being addressed by the author doesn't have a one-for-one -one correlation in our society or in our setting. However, the general principles and the wisdom of Scripture still does apply today. 
that's where First Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, our example tonight, is going to take us. Yeah? We're going to get there. That's good. All right, so anybody else? What do the epistles provide for us? Why do we need them? What comes to mind? Anything else somebody wants to say? Yes, ma'am? Encouragement. In what sense do the letters of the New Testament encourage us? Yep. So in 1 Corinthians, starting in verse chapter 1, verse 4, you have the thanksgiving. So if you remember, there's always an opening that has like a greeting and an identification of the author and an identification of the recipients. Hey, you, this is me. And then he moves on. But then that thanksgiving, here's my contention. And this is, again, totally free. The first two or three verses of any letter in the New Testament, we generally just blow right past Shame on us. Shame on us. Because, let me just read one for us. Because we preached on this not too long ago. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1. Or verse 1. Paul, Silvanius, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you in peace. And we look at that and we go like, yeah, that's kind of formulaic. Cool. Go to the very end of 1 Thessalonians. Pick it up in verse 25 of chapter 5. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Verse 27. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all. And if you trace it back a little bit before, he talks about peace. In that greeting, here's my, here's my challenge to you. Next time you're reading the New Testament letters, those first three or four verses, Read them, and then you tell me if the author doesn't actually tell you what he's going to talk about for the next however long, whether it's 16 chapters or three. He tells you what he's going to talk about, but we just blow right past it because it's part of the formula, right? And part of that formula is ingrained with the uh, epistles is encouragement. I absolutely agree. Amen to that. Anything else we want to say about the epistles? All right. Let me give us a couple that we didn't necessarily mention, but we kind of hit around. Number one, the epistles provide a unique glimpse into the situation of early churches. Are you seeing what I'm saying? Well, here's this societal issue. Here's a confrontation of sin. Here's how they are messing something up, and then the author has to write to them to fix it. And it's not always just sin issues, as with 1 Thessalonians chapter, end of chapter 3, I'm sorry, into chapter 4, beginning in chapter 5, we talk about the, the second coming of God, or of, of Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2 picks up that idea once again because the letter that Paul wrote to answer their questions that were assumed, apparently they had more questions, so he had to write another letter, right? So it's not always this confrontation of sin, but there is theological content that's being worked out in real time, as it were, right? When you see Galatians chapters 3 through 4, really 2 through 4, that is basically Romans condensed. That's basically Romans chapter 3 all the way through 11 condensed into three chapters, right? And Paul in Romans just expands that argument out at a very large scale, right? 
So you can see the arguments that are being made meant to counter errant thought, meant to count, counter errant behavior, whatever it may be. It gives us a glimpse into what's going on. Um, so 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware of the day of the Lord and how it will come like a thief in the night. And in fact, I actually, I preached this text. And what I said then was most likely whenever Timothy brought the report back to Paul, he said, man, they're doing great. They do have a question, though. And so Paul answers their question. Yeah, we get a glimpse into what's going on. Um, whenever you look in Philemon, there's only one chapter in Philemon, verses 8 through 10, this is what Paul writes there in Philemon 8 through 10. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my child, Onesimus whose father I became in my imprisonment. Onesimus seemed to be this runaway slave that Paul probably got tangled up with either in Colossae, or, or I'm sorry, uh, Hierapolis, or in Ephesus, most likely Ephesus. And then Onesimus went with Paul and Luke and his crew in Asia Minor, and at some point, whenever Paul is sending this letter back to the Colossians and sending a letter back to the Ephesians and this place called Laodicea, he sends Onesimus back to his master. And so what we see there is like, there was probably a bunch of slaves in the churches, right? If there was enough for Paul to run into one of these guys and then to send him back to his former master, and he's saying, hey, you receive him as a brother, and whatever he took, you charge it on my account, this seems to be someone that's fairly common. So we see the situation of the early church. Does that make sense? All sorts of crazy stuff is in the New Testament if you just read a little bit. All right, here's the next thing I want to say, and you know this. The epistles provide the highest Christology outside of the Gospels, outside of Jesus himself saying in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham existed, I already existed eternally. I am God, right? Outside of Jesus making claims to be God, in the scriptures, the epistles actually lay out this really high view of who Christ is. So I want to read for us Colossians chapter 1 and hold on to some of this language because we'll talk about it again here in a bit. Colossians 1.15 says this, speaking of Christ, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things, Christ, by Christ, let's just, let's insert Christ here. For by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. And Christ is before all things, and in Christ all things hold together. And Christ is the head of the body, the church. He, Christ, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Christ might be preeminent. For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, Christ, to reconcile to himself... God, Christ, the Godhead, reconciled to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Christ's cross. High Christology. We kind of have this ambiguous view of what Christ would do in the Old Testament, but then whenever Jesus shows up in the Gospels, and now Paul and the other authors of the New Testament are going to start laying out, here's how big a deal this is. When you read the letter to the Hebrews... Um, we don't know who wrote that, but we know it was addressed to Jews who were in the diaspora. And basically, if you want to understand what the book of Hebrews is about, Jesus is better. 
You now know the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better than what? Yep. Christ is better than what? Well, angels, uh, the law, Moses, the temple, the sacrifices, what you think is uh, the, the real meaning of those sacrifices, Melchizedek, name it. Christ is better. Are you tracking with that? And so they are elevating how big a deal Christ is. And that's why we need the New Testament letters. And then here's my last one uh, that I want to talk about here real quick, is that authors are frequently going to ground their teaching, their argument, in Old Testament texts. They're going to reference the Old Testament and say, see, this is exactly what we've been talking about this whole time. This is what Jesus did. Are you seeing why that's important? Because if the people of God under the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, if that was something that was only isolated for the people that would inherit, you know, Genesis 12 and Genesis 15's promises to Abraham, and it was going to end only with uh, the people under the Old Covenant, well, then us Christians, we're hosed. Like, we don't stand a chance. But what the New Testament says is like, no, 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 no. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, or excuse me, the Old Covenant. And there is something new that he has ushered in and will one day inaugurate. And all of those promises from the Old Testament, those belong to us. We inherit Genesis 12 and Genesis 15's promises, as it were. And literally, this is actually what Anthony said on Sunday that God has called you to faith just like Abraham so that others might be called to faith through your faith, right? Abraham was called into God's people, made God's people, so that there would be others who would be collected in. And this is what the Old Testament was pointing to. And then the New Testament is just going to pick up and say, yeah, that's us, right? Are y'all tracking with that? I feel like I'm getting some blank stares. Hey, no, 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 what's up? No, no I can't right now, uh, but I probably can tomorrow morning. How, for real? Like, how bad? How bad? Okay, yeah, well, how long? No, 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 yeah, yeah I can get it. How much are we going to need? Well, they'll, yeah, they'll tell me, but yes. Okay, yeah, they'll take care of it. No, 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 I can get it. I get it. Yeah, man, no worries. No worries. Yep. Cool. I'll talk with you. All right, so mirror reading can be really dangerous when you're in the New Testament. Mirror reading can be really dangerous. And since you don't know what that is, let me give you a definition here. This is from a guy named Clinton Arnold. Um, and he's a guy who has written all sorts of commentaries about New Testament letters. This is what he says. Mirror reading is a way of reading a New Testament letter from the assumption that most of what is said by the biblical writer is reflective of a problem or situation confronting the church. So, Sue, Ed, this is y'all's comments there. For example, someone might say that because Paul admonishes the Colossians to rid themselves of anger, wrath, malice, and slander, that this must have been a big problem in the church at Colossae. And then he says, however, such a way of reading the letter could be easily overdone. Some of the instruction that Paul gives may simply be based on the fact that these are universal human problems because of the problem of sin. Okay? Mirror reading can be dangerous. What was my fake conversation about? I didn't actually take a phone call, just so you know. What was my conversation about? You weren't eavesdropping, yeah, with the mic on and everything, right? 
What was my conversation about? Somebody needed something? That's a really bold assumption. How do you know that? Maybe even money. Okay. I got to do it tomorrow, though. I know that much, right? What else? How much do you need? But, but how much of what? What was that conversation about? Answer my question. You don't know. And when we read the New Testament, there are plenty of places, well, guess what? We don't know exactly what the situation or the occasion for writing was. When you read Colossians, the Colossian heresy or the Colossian controversy, we don't know exactly what it is. Whenever you can look in Colossians chapter 3 and 4, Paul talks about um, that we uh, need to make sure that we are the ones who are putting off the old self with its practices and that we need to put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of his image of his creator, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. He goes on to say, hey, there's this group who are treating their bodies with asceticism and harsh treatment. What is he talking about? Is John in 1 John writing about Gnosticism or a proto-Gnosticism or some kind of syncretism or some kind of crazy off-based biblical idea that people are just walking in? Maybe. But here's the deal. Whenever you land definitively and say, oh, no, 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 I know what the Colossian controversy was about, you are then in your observations you're going to make wrong interpretations. Because if that's not what Paul was addressing, then your conclusion could easily be wrong, right? Mirror reading can be very dangerous. Just like my phone conversation that was fake, you don't know what was going on, but every one of you felt awkward there, didn't you? Right? One, because some dude was answering his phone while he was teaching. But also, how many of y'all were sitting there thinking, like, this is not a good situation? Yeah. What if this was me talking about picking up everything I needed for my puppy that I'm getting tomorrow? Or my children? No one's sick. No one's hurt. I just need to get them. Right? Because everything that I said earlier and I was leading you that way was negative. But what if that conversation was positive? Because if you go back and listen to this after the fact, all of that could be read in a positive light. It's just like, hey, he got called in the middle of teaching and he's answering and that's weird, right? Mirror reading can be dangerous. Yeah, we good with that? Shake it off like, yes, I didn't answer a phone call. Okay, cool. Don't fire me. All right. <clears throat> so let's talk about our seven principles, and then we will have a little bit of time for our uh, First Timothy. Let's look at guideline number uno. There is no substitute for knowing a text well. None. There's no substitute for it. In fact, whenever I teach guys how to teach Bible studies, how to preach, the number one thing I tell them is, I don't care how much polish you have on delivering whatever it is you're going to say, if you don't know the text, you're already wrong. When it comes to our personal Bible study, it's not nearly that dramatic, but here's what I mean by knowing the text well. Um, when was the letter written? Who wrote it? Where is Colossae? What is a uh, Galatian? Where is that? Well, Galatia is like a province. It's like a huge chunk. It's not even like one place. Who is Timothy? Why is it important? 
why is there a whole lot of stuff that is in Timothy is similar to what we find in Titus, but why are they not exactly the same? Okay? If you have a study Bible, you got everything you need. They're going to give you all sorts of junk about that. The date it was written, who wrote it, why they wrote it, some key themes, key words. They're going to come up all sorts of good jazz. If you don't have that, Charlie, you got yours? I gave him the heads up yesterday about this. You see that little folder right there? Charlie has every bit of this information in that folder. You don't even need to lug around a study Bible. If you don't know when 1 John was written or some kind of contextual things surrounding 1 John, I promise you, you're probably not going to get as much out of it as if you would if you just read one page, not even, one page of Charlie's folder that he has back there. And I promise you, you will get more out of that if you just have a little bit of information, right? There is no substitute for knowing the text well, the surrounding ancillary things. We're going to come back around to that here in a bit. Cool? That's number one. Here's number two. Use mirror reading with caution. Yeah? Maybe it's not me picking up some medicine for someone's sick kid or anything like that. Maybe it's me picking up my puppy. Right? You, you, if you get the wrong conclusion, then you're off base. Yeah? So, we already talked about that. So, use mirror reading with caution. Here's the next biggest thing. If you write nothing else down for the rest of the night, write this down. Identify the argument that is being made and its supporting evidence. If the letters weren't just being fired off willy-nilly and they were just landing in somebody's lap outside of context, if they weren't that way and they were in fact addressing a situation, if they were in fact addressing some errant thought, if they were on some purposeful uh, uh, reason for being sent, then don't you think the author is going to make that pretty clear why he sent the letter? Right? So, what we're talking about there is if someone's going to tell you what they need to do, if they are correcting something, if they are addressing a problem, whatever it may be, what we call that is an argument. They're going to make a statement, they're going to give some kind of proposition, and here's an idea that you need to hold to, and here's the reason why. That is called an argument. If you're reading Romans, it makes total sense because Paul actually is verbally and mentally sparring with someone on the other side. Whenever they hear what he's going to say, they're going to have in their head like, well, okay, I hear what you say, Paul, but what about this situation? In the very next verse, Paul will say, and for those who are considering this thought, right? You know, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then the next question he answers in the next chapter is, okay, well then what good was the law? Like, why, why can't we just go sin, do whatever we want to do? Why can't I just sin all the more so that grace may abound? All right? Paul is going to have an argument. So you have got to be able to identify what that argument is, what its main point is, and then find the evidence underneath it. Yeah? That's what we're going to do in 1 Timothy 6. Y'all good with that? Does that make sense? Okay, and by the way, you do this intuitively. It's just, I want to put it into a process. <clears throat> Here's number four. If an Old Testament text is quoted, go find it and read it. Imagine that. Maybe you ought to go read the verse. If you've got a study Bible or generally just a Bible, will have some kind of footnote that will tell you what's being quoted. Go read it. It'll help you, okay? But guess what? You have to take it one level further now. Because this is now part of the supporting evidence. Generally, that's how the Old Testament works in the New Testament. Or guys are referencing the Old Testament to ground their argument. 
you now need to see what the purpose of that verse is. Why did that author say what they said in the place they did? And this is where you start pulling on the thread of Bible study. It can get really dense. But I promise you, if you even got just a, a general Bible with footnotes, just pay attention to it and just read those things, right? Read the footnotes, go read that text, and see why the author used it when they did, yeah? Nothing mind-boggling there. That's number four. Let's talk about number five. Please, read the whole letter before you try to understand a single verse. Let me make it even more clear. Please, read the whole letter before you try to understand some complex word. Let me ask this simple question. What is the Antichrist? What is the Antichrist? Okay, all right, so no one knows. Let's ask this other question, because this is what people normally ask. Who is the Antichrist? You say Satan? Possibly. Possibly. Do y'all know how many times Antichrist is actually used in the Bible? Four places. You want to take a stab at where none of them are found? In the book that we associate it with. Not a single one of them is in Revelation. They're all used by John, and three of them are in 1 John. So let me read the verse for us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children... It is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist, that title, Antichrist, is coming. And so now, many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. So, who is, or what is, the Antichrist? And we want to get wrapped around the axle and try to figure that out. You know what you could do? Somebody look three verses later for me. If you're in 1 John, somebody read 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. Three verses later in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. Somebody read that for me. Second person who gets there. So you tell me, Millie, who is... The Antichrist, or what is the Antichrist? Anyone who denies Christ. And we want to blow it up and like figure out, oh, the Pope is the Antichrist. <laughs> Maybe. Does he deny that Jesus is the Christ? Then yes. Can you think of anyone else, maybe even that you live near, that is fitting this definition of Antichrist? Yes. Because it's not this super technical thing that there's like this one awful figure that is the Antichrist. It's a general term of anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. In fact, later in 1 John chapter 4, John comes back to this title. By this, uh, 1 John chapter 4 verses 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Simple enough. Verse 3. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Very easy. This, speaking of the one who doesn't confess, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now in the world already. Does it make it sound like John has this really big bad wolf idea of who the Antichrist is out there? No. 
And honestly, if you literally would just read three more verses, you would see that. So that leads us into the next biggest part. Read the whole letter. That's the easiest way to dispel a lot of problems, um, which I know the hilarity of what I'm going to tell you is we're going to look in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I'm going to tell you to look at two verses, and we're not going to have time to read the whole letter. I get it. Don't you know, put your pitchforks down. That's kind of like uh, when I was in college, uh, every professor, because I was a history major, every professor said, hey, you've got a paper. It's 15 pages long. Do not start this thing the night before. And then come the final, they would hand me a little blue book that had a bunch of empty blank paper in there. And they would say, okay, you need to write five pages in the next 45 minutes. Doesn't make any sense to me that like I can't start the paper the night before, but then my final, I have only 40 minutes to write the equivalent of like four pages. That's stupid. So I get it. I understand there's a little bit of uh, hypocrisy here. Just overlook that for a moment. Read the whole letter before trying to understand a single verse. And really, I'm talking about those difficult sections. Here's the, uh, what are we on? Number six, divide the letter into discourse units. Now, what is a discourse unit? Take a swing at it and break it apart where it makes sense. There's a discourse unit. Don't try to church it up. Don't try to make it super difficult. Don't trust every chapter and, and verse break, but use your subheadings. They will help you. Instead of trying to understand all of Ephesians, let's just look at Ephesians chapter 2. Well, it seems like there's a really clear break between chapter 2, verse 10, and verse 11. Okay, well, then maybe 1 through 10 goes together and 11 through 22 goes together. And as you're looking at 11 through 22, there seems to be a pretty clear break around verse 18. So maybe that kind of sits together as well. You see what I'm doing? Like, break up those huge chunks into smaller portions, and then you just start working this process. Because here's the next biggest thing you need to see. Words have potential meaning. Words don't have meaning just because you read it. Words have meaning because they are given meaning specifically within the paragraph that they are found. Let's go back to the conversation about Antichrist. If I asked you what is the Antichrist or who, did your mind immediately run to like Revelation or left behind books or like this evil figure? But if we were to look at just that word, our mind might run that way. But if we read it in a paragraph, it kind of dispels all those things, doesn't it? It's much more casual. And it doesn't make it any better, but it does make it easier for us to understand that that word antichrist may not mean exactly what we thought it meant. Here's my next example. I told you Colossians chapter 1, y'all needed to remember some stuff. Colossians chapter 1, verse one, uh, 15 says, He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What's the problem with that word, firstborn? He wasn't born. Well, Jesus was born, but the Christ wasn't. Paul is a heretic. He calls Jesus, the Christ, part of creation. And in fact, a little bit later on in verse 16, verse 18, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He wasn't even the first dude raised to life and given a resurrection. In fact, Jesus resurrected a dude named Lazarus, right? The word that gets used there is prototokos, and it's translated as firstborn. Protos or protos means first, and technon is a word for child, so the first child, firstborn. That's how it can be translated. But when we read that, generally for us, we read firstborn as first in chronology. You know who my firstborn is of my three girls? 
It's Sophia, my youngest child, because she's our only born child. Our other two are adopted, so my firstborn is my third. Let that bake your noodle. Is there any other way in which we might understand firstborn? Maybe it's not first in chronology, but it's first in importance, above and beyond. He has preeminence. In fact, that's the word that Paul uses in verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He might have first place over everything. If you look in First Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, that Christ would be the summation of all things, that he is the most important. Prototokos can also be translated as firstborn as the most important or standing outside of. You know who is also called the Prototokos in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament? David. Is David the firstborn of Jesse? In fact, it's kind of the opposite, right? He's the last. He's the runt. But how is it that he is the firstborn? Because he's the most important, right? Words have potential meaning, but meaning is really derived from the paragraph in those discourse units. That author is going to use the word antichrist in a very specific way. He's going to use prototokos in a very specific way. He's going to use firstborn in a specific way, and that's within his argument because he is addressing an issue. Huh? You see how all this is getting layered on top of each other? There we go. All right. And here's the last one. This is the easiest one. Determine legitimate applications. And this was the issue that we kind of springboarded off with Ed is like there may not be an exact um, one-for-one uh, analog for the situation that we find in the New Testament, but we can lift that principle and apply it to our lives, right? Remember, this was all the way back. We've been talking about this for 15 weeks now. You make prayerful preparations when you approach the Bible. Then you, you, make, good or excuse me, um, you make good observations, which then lead to right interpretations, which then must be leveraged towards legitimate applications into your life. When you do that, I promise you, you'll start seeing all sorts of new stuff in the Bible, in the New Testament, in these letters that you are so familiar with that, frankly, you may not have ever seen before. And you do this, I'm just challenging you to do it better. Yep? All right, so those are our seven principles. Any questions? All right, so what we're going to do over the next 10 minutes, you are going to do this by yourself, in your group, whatever. If you want to buddy up with someone, I don't care. I'm not going to take up the homework. We're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to be using the ESV, and so you want to use that, whatever, I don't care. Um, this is what you're going to look at. So if, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, you need to read through that. And I'm going to tell you the questions right here. Here are the three questions that we're going to ask. What is Paul's main point? What is the evidence that he uses to support that claim or that instruction? And how are we supposed to apply that to our lives today? That's a really condensed version of those seven guidelines, right? So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, you got like seven minutes, ready, set, go. All right. What is Paul's main point in 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2? What is his main point? In your own words. Everyone's gun shy. I love it. Honor your master. Dude took two whole verses to say all that, and you just summed it up in like 
three words, right? Can't be. There's no way. Honor your master. How many of y'all agree? About half the room. Okay. Good. Let's hold on to that. Anybody else want to take a shot at what the main point is? John, I see you're raising your hand. No, 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 no. What is Paul's main point? Our culture is the application. Paul's point. You see, you see how now I'm yanking the rug out from underneath you. I didn't, I didn't mean to. Okay, but go ahead. Okay. We live what we believe. Okay, so you say we have inherited as the Judeo-Christian ethic, we have a work ethic that says we honor who we're working for because we honor God by the same way. Okay, this is what I would argue, wrong, not because what you said is wrong, but because that's the application. Okay, this is where it's really key that we've got to understand the difference between Paul's argument and what we do with it, right? Because there may not be a one-for-one -one correlation. Ed, did you have something you want to throw in there? Yes, sir. I thought also that the application applies to both the servant and the master. Okay, so, so you would say the application doesn't just apply only to the servant, but the one who is the master as well. I think that's good. Yep. Let me just tell you the answer is yes. Honor your master. Okay. In fact, here's how I know that. And I'm going to show you this. This is for free. And we're going to walk through this other stuff because the rest of the answers are going to come out through this. Has anyone ever seen something that looks like this? This is 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2. And I wrote all this out. So what I did is I broke up 6, 1 through 2 into its own discourse unit. It seems to be a clear idea that fits together. And whenever I know that a discourse unit fits together, there's generally going to be either some kind of teaching or some kind of command, and then he's going to ground it with some kind of explanation. Verse 1, I broke up into three different pieces, and that is the whole idea. Verse 2 is the explanation. Okay, When you get to verse 1, the main idea, the action is let all who are under a yoke as a bondservant regard their own master as holy uh, or as, uh, as worthy of all honor. Honor your master. That is the main point. Now, how does he go on to explain it? At the rest of verse 2 is he gives two ideas. You do that so that, right, he's going to give you the action and then the purpose, honor them so that, the name of God, one, and that the teaching will not be reviled. And you can add, so that the name of God will not be reviled, and so that the teaching won't be reviled. That's the whole idea. Verse 2 then comes around, and he's going to give you a negative statement, do not, and a positive statement, do, right? The first part of chapter 6, verse 2 says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful. And if he makes a statement like that, you can almost be resting assured, Paul's then going to give you the grounding. He's going to give you the proof. He's going to give you the explanation of that, which is the grounds, which is what that G stands for. And guess what? In the ESV, it even uses that word. Don't be disrespectful. They must not be disrespectful on the ground that they're brothers. 
That's the negative. Don't be disrespectful. Why? Because they're brothers. Positively, what should you do? Rather, they must serve all the better. In fact, not should you only not disrespect them, you should be the best servant they have. Why? The grounding for that is since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So there are people around that benefit from your good service, and they're all believers as well. Incidentally, do you not see a sermon up there? If you were to preach, if I were to preach this, I would take a text and I would break it up like this. And here's my main point for us this morning. God wants you to serve wherever you are with all honor. What do I mean by that? Y'all need to make sure that we are not um, reviling the name of God because of the way you're acting. We want to make sure that there is nothing contrary to sound teaching that people identify by the way that you act. That's verse 1, B, and C. Now, how does this work out? Well, let me give you something you shouldn't do. You shouldn't disrespect your boss. I don't care how much of a knucklehead he is, you don't disrespect him. What's the second thing you should do? Well, you should be the best worker he has. That is literally what Anthony does every Sunday. Whenever he grabs a text, he's breaking it up into these discourse units. He's finding the argument. He's bringing that main point out. He's giving it to us. And then so that we don't think that he's just making this junk up, he looks at the text because the author tells you why you should do those things. This is how sermons are formed. Incidentally, this is how you should read your Bible. Novel thought, huh? So, let's come back around to this right here. What is Paul's main point? Honor those who are your masters, who are your, uh, those who you serve, yeah? What evidence does Paul use? Well, they're your brother. And if you do this poorly, you will lead to this reviling of uh, the Word of God, um, the teaching, and God himself. What are some other um, explanations? Well, don't do this, but do this. You see how I explained all that? That's, all that is contained right in there. But this is where it comes to John's comment. How then are we to apply this into our lives? So you tell me, how would we apply 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2 into our lives today? How many of y'all are indentured servants or slaves right now? So we would just say, ah, it doesn't apply to us at all. You may feel like an indentured servant, but you're really not, yeah? We are under a government. So what would the application then be, Rich? That we have to follow those rules and laws. And what happens if we don't? Respect and serve those placed in authority. Now, is that the same exact thing as a slave with their master? And the answer to that is no, it's not. It's not the same thing. However, the timeless principle that we can lift out is that in their culture, who was the rightful authority over that slave? Their owner, their master. And what does Paul tell that dude to do? You be the best worker he's got, and you honor him. So for us, even though we're not in that exact situation, we honor them and obey. Yes? Keep going. There are rules for masters, so whoever it was that brought that up, it's not just for the servant, it's also for the one who is the owner, who is the, the, the slave owner, right? Yep, Ephesians 5, uh, 22 through 33 is where that is. 
Any other applications that you want to roll into this? Honor God. It's implicit in the point of honoring your servants, he's, or your masters, is so that there will not be this reviling against God. Well, shouldn't we then assume that you should honor God too? And the answer to that is, yeah, right? So that's, I think that's a clear point. That's an application for us. Absolutely. All these are good applications. So if people will witness and observe our conduct and it doesn't accord with sound teaching because our conduct is jacked up, then yeah, that's going to be a problem, right? Any other final thoughts about 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2? Because we're already four minutes over. All right, so here's the deal. You know how to do all those things. You may not know how to graph it out like that. Doesn't matter. You actually do that internally in your head. All I'm challenging you to do is just to do it better and to do it consciously, to think about smaller sections. What is the main point? What evidence is provided? Why do those two things go together? And the more you do that, you'll stack up one small two-verse section, and that'll fit into this other larger discourse section, which is all chapter five and six, and then you see how that works in all six chapters, and guess what? You now fully understand, at some level, the point of First Timothy. And then you move to 2 Timothy. And then you do Titus, right? Just work your way through that. You've got a lifetime to do this. Don't be overwhelmed, yeah? All right, so let me tell us what we're doing next week, apocalyptic literature, where we talk about the Antichrist, right? Maybe. Come back next week and we'll find out. Next week is our last week. Um, that is what we are going to end on, is with apocalyptic literature. Um, we are not going to do that Q&A session on the 14th, so if you've got questions, you better bring them and write them down because we ain't meeting the week after, yeah? And just to give you all a heads up, we have already kind of laid out, this is where we're going in the spring. I know you can't see it because the font's a whole lot smaller. Don't worry about it. The Gospel of John. I've got each week already laid out what verses we're handling, where we're going to be talking about each one. We are not going to cover all of John. Can't do it. Can't do it. Even if we took a whole two-semester section, we still wouldn't handle every single verse. So... Forgive me, but this is our best stab at covering all of John. And what we're going to do is we're going to take our hermeneutical principles from this semester with the Gospels and how to read the New Testament and historical genres, uh, historical uh, narratives, and we're going to lay it out and we're going to walk through John. Yeah? That's what we're doing. All right, let me pray for us and then we'll be done. Father, we thank you uh, for the instruction that we have contained in your word through the New Testament letters. God, I pray that as we encounter these uh, letters that we are very familiar with for most of us, God, I pray that you would give us fresh eyes to understand what it is that you have recorded for us through our brothers, through your servants, so that we might know you better. And so God, I pray that we would have this drilled down into our heart by your Holy Spirit and that we would apply it into our lives as we go about reading. And God, we pray that we would apply it and we would bring honor to you in that way. So, Father, we give you this time, and we trust you, and we love you. And we pray all this in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. There it is.